0: Welcome to the CODcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and with me today is George Backrack, the president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts. His organization has just released a scorecard for the legislature, grading lawmakers on how they voted on environmental issues.
1: What did you find, George? Well, we found that in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, there's a lot of good legislators who support the environment, but not as many as you might think. And part of the problem is that it's hard to protect the environment if you're not funding agencies that protect the environment. And so a number of legislators who consistently vote against funding got lower scores.
0: So uh, you you broke it down by House members and Senate members. And Let's talk a little bit about how you did the grading here. Just give us a brief rundown of what bills you picked, why you picked them, and, and who, did this,
1: who did the grading here? Or how did you do it? Well, first of all, what makes this uh, scorecard different and unique is that while most scorecards simply grade votes, we went beyond votes to acts of leadership. Uh, unfortunately, there are not that many roll call votes. The legislature often does voice votes particularly the more controversial matters, so they want to sort of hide behind uh, an unrecorded vote on difficult things. Uh, We did find enough roll call votes, but we also said to ourselves, it's not enough. And so we gave points to legislators who showed acts of leadership, such as authoring a a letter to colleagues in support of solar energy or in opposition to a gas pipeline tariff. Uh, We took points away from legislators who supported uh, bad policy separate and apart from votes. A number of the votes were um, involved with the recent energy bill uh, that has allowed for the building of the first offshore wind farm in the United States, which is, we think, remarkable, 1,600 uh, uh, megawatts. Uh, We wanted legislators to support not only hydro from Canada, but hydro mixed with onshore wind from uh, uh, from uh, Maine because we want to diversify our energy portfolio. Uh, so those were the kinds of bills we looked at in addition to budget issues. And again, very hard to, for the department of conservation and recreation, the department of environmental protection to do their jobs, to protect all of us. If we keep cutting their budgets. Now,
0: George, you were, you are a former state Senator. How long were you in the uh, legislature?
1: Well, I was a state Senator in another millennium, uh, before there were podcasts. Um, so I was there for three two-year terms in the 1980s.
0: Okay. So what did you find about the difference between the Senate and the House in how you grade it?
1: I think it's pretty clear that um, the Senate these days uh, is somewhat bolder, somewhat willing to take on a vision of renewable energy that transcends uh, issues like uh, instant cost or pricing. They're willing to look at the long term and say that renewable energy may cost a little bit more today, but in the long term it's going to have huge payoffs not only to energy consumers but also job creation. Um, Offshore wind, uh, for example, could create fifty or 60,000 jobs here just as as it has in Europe. The House has tended to be somewhat more cautious um, and has uh, sort of struggled to support renewable energy as much as we would like.
0: So uh, another group, Associated Industries of Massachusetts, did its own scorecard, slightly, mostly different issues, I think, than you looked at, although there may be a little bit of overlap. And they would have, of course, grade the House and Senate a little bit differently. In in their ranking, they said the House was more uh, receptive to you know, promoting the economy and helping right. the economy grow, and the Senate was doing all sorts of wild liberal things. That's my words, not theirs, yeah. but but I'm paraphrasing. So it seemed the exact opposite. So as a as someone who might want to look at these scorecards, is it all in the eyes of the beholder? What what the House and Senate are like, or
1: so, what? So let me be my usual gentle, understated self and suggest that the Associated Industries of Massachusetts is simply in the wrong century. Um, their policy. Um, prescriptions in energy, which are pro-fossil fuels and anti-solar and anti-offshore wind, are perfect for another century, just not the 21st century. Uh, so they graded members of the House high if they voted against solar and uh, other elements, and they, uh, they uh, knocked down many members of the Senate that had a greater vision and supported renewable energy.
0: Because they are concerned about the cost, I take it.
1: Well, they are concerned about the cost, but I would suggest to you that um, they want to get us into what I consider to be a fool's errand. Um, uh, if we build more gas pipelines, as they want us to, that will cost $8 billion. And the utilities want to charge that onto a tariff on electric ratepayers, that is, gas pipelines paid for by electric ratepayers. That has been struck down by the courts. But AIM and the utilities still want to build more natural gas pipelines, which will still get paid in one way or the other if push comes to shove by the ratepayers, by all of us. Here's the problem with that $8 billion that will get paid out over 30 years. If in the next two, three, five years, Elon Musk or one of the MIT uh, graduates that are kicking around here uh, develops a storage battery that is sizable and economical, um, and we don't need those gas pipelines in five years, we're still going to be paying for them for 30. It's called stranded cost. I don't know why that's a fiscally conservative thing to do.
0: Okay. So when I looked at your House rankings and the bills you looked at, uh, let's say there's two, four, six, eight bills. Six of the eight were override votes. Um, So in other words, the the, um, legislature passed something, the governor vetoed it, and now the House was voting whether to override or not. Um, so I guess what I was curious about is uh Jim Lyons, Representative Jim Lyons, is the lowest ranking on your right. on your list. He 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 voted uh with you only two times out of those eight. That much? That much. And so he ended up with a, let's see here a score of 27 out of 100. But would the governor then, under that ranking, be, have the same uh, score? Because he overrode six of the eight. I mean, he, he, he vetoed six of right. the eight.
1: So we have uh, been in agreement with the governor on some things and great opposition to the governor on other things. We've actually issued a separate report card on the administration, which I think came out somewhere in the C category. Um, We believe, uh, again, the governor is a social moderate and a fiscal conservative, and he has said he's not going to raise revenues. And as a result, uh, we keep cutting the budgets for environmental protection. Uh, So we're not happy with that. We're trying to work with the governor now on getting those numbers back up again, and we're hopeful that he might. But understand this, when we rate these people on budget questions, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts spends less than 1% of its state budget on environmental protection. And let me give you another example. The Department of Environmental Protection in 2008 was charged with uh, dealing with climate change. The Global Warming Solutions Act was passed that year, the Green Communities Act was passed that year, and huge responsibilities for climate were placed on DEP. Since that day to today, we've cut that budget by 30%. So we've increased their responsibility in a critical area, climate, and cut their budget by 30%. The problem is this all gets papered over because government employees, when asked, simply say, no problem, we can do more with less or we can do the same with less. Well, if you can do the same with less, why would anybody give you any more? The reality is they're doing less with less. We're not getting brownfields cleaned up as, as quickly as we wanted and having cities re, revitalized. We're not uh, uh, chasing utilities on leaking gas pipelines. We're not doing a lot of things. And legislators keep voting against those budgets, can't claim to be environmentalists. They keep voting against environmental budgets.
0: Okay. Um, I was interested in your uh, giving bonus points for these dear colleague letters. Yeah. Tell me about dear colleague letters, because uh, this is, they've, been, they've been in existence for some time. They've happened, you know, over the years, but they seem to be gaining some currency in the
1: legislature now. Why is that? So, uh, Bruce, up until this year, I thought Dear Colleague's letters were a complete waste of time. I mean, a dime a dozen, who cares?
0: George, let's stop just one—I forgot to say, Dear Colleague letters, just for our listeners who are wondering what a Dear Colleague letter is, it's where someone or a group of legislators write a letter to their colleagues or— Leaders or whatever expressing a point of view about some piece of legislation. Correct. So you were saying until this time you didn't think they...
1: So there were two very interesting dear colleague letters. One was on solar energy, raising the so-called net metering cap, which would allow um, businesses and, and, and others to put solar panels on their roofs, and if they accumulate enough energy, sell it back to the grid. There was a cap on that, and there was also a change in the economics of that so that it's an interesting play. When you buy your energy from the utilities, you buy it at retail, a top dollar, and when you want to sell it back, the utilities want to drop it to a wholesale price. They want to sell to you at retail but buy it back at wholesale. Well, that doesn't work very well for any industry. It's not clear how many people would race uh, to that equation. At any rate, the House passed a very weak version, and then the Senate passed a stronger version. And then 100 members of the House signed a dear colleague letter after the fact, essentially saying, oops, we actually like the Senate version better, the stronger version. You know, that takes a lot of guts for people to sign on to a letter that says their earlier vote was wrong and encouraging the other chamber uh, to persevere. Right. Um, And the people that supported that, like Corey Atkins from Concord, deserve a lot of credit because leadership doesn't like it. Think about this. In a conference committee where both chambers, House and Senate, meet a few members to work things out, all of a sudden the House members are being told that the version they're selling isn't supported by 100 members of their own chamber. Right. The other one, quickly, is on the uh, notion that, that would allow the utilities to charge all of us a tariff on our electric bills f- to build a gas pipeline. And Representative Kulik, a Democrat, and Representative Brad Jones, the Republican leader, co-authored a dear colleague letter that said nope we don't think the utilities should be allowed to impose a tariff and it was quite interesting it was bipartisan we ha- have praised uh, representative uh kulik and representative jones and gave them points on our scorecard
0: and both those occurred in the house right why is that is that because of the earlier overall rankings you sort of see? Or, I or think what? because,
1: the, again, the House was somewhat more reticent to do uh, be as bold on, on energy uh, issues, and uh, it was the way of members to send a message to their own leaders that they're not really happy well, with the formal top-down uh, positioning on these issues. So the
0: pipeline tariff, uh, excuse me for going into the weeds a little bit, but on that issue, when it was um, in the House, that dear colleague letter said to House leaders, "Please don't include a pipeline tariff in our uh, in the legislation that you're about to report out." We hear that's on the table, and there, so it wasn't included in the legislation that the House right. reported out. The, Senate, the bill went over to the Senate, and the Senate put a prohibition on a pipeline tariff. Right. Then it went to conference committee. Now, Representative Jones, who signed that dear colleague letter, was on the conference committee, and since the Senate unanimously passed an amendment that said there should be a prohibition on a pipeline tariff, you had four of the six members on record as saying they supported uh, essentially a prohibition on a pipeline tariff, but of course it came out without that prohibition, the bill came out of the committee without that prohibition, and that that dear colleague, uh, you know, good feeling that was there seemed to dissipate in the House, it seemed to me. What's your take?
1: Well, democracy is a funny business, and um, uh, conference committees are an even funnier business, uh, not to get too arcane here, but it's not a majority in the conference committee. Uh, So it's not like three on the Senate side and one, in this case Brad Jones, on the House side, can make a majority of four out of the six. It's got to be two and two. The two the two Democrats in this it's case? It's got to be...
0: Well, it's got to be two
1: members of the Senate and two members of the House to reach an agreement. So it could not have been on that particular issue the three Senate members who wanted a prohibition on a tariff joined by Brad Jones on the House side. That would have been insufficient. Don't ask me who makes up these rules. Uh, that's the way it goes. So...
0: Um, and what do you want us, the general public, to do with these rankings that you put out? Do you want us to vote based on that? Do you want, what do you want us to do with them?
1: Well, I think it's the public's right to know how their legislators vote. And to the degree people care about our future and energy and the environment, that's the record. And, you know, we are a little concerned that a lot of – look, everybody's an environmentalist. I haven't yet met anybody. Perhaps the exception is Jim Imhoff from Oklahoma – Uh, But just about everybody says they're an environmentalist. Then the question is, will they put their money where their mouth is? And again, you can't say you're an environmentalist and then vote against funding for the environment. And what we find ironic is a lot of legislators will say, well, you know, I really, uh, I'm an environmentalist. I really helped restore the, the Smith Pond in my town of Skunkwater Falls. You know, I'm a good guy. I helped, you know, repair the park for my Little League team in, you know, East Overshoe. And then they vote against the environmental budget for everybody else. So they don't mind getting funding for their hometown park, but in terms of a larger budget for everybody else. Now, these are not city councillors. These are state legislators. Their job is to come up with a state policy. So, again, I can't tell how many calls I got from folks that said, we're good guys because we did something nice back at home. Well, I expect them to do something nice back at home. Their obligation is to do something good for the Commonwealth.
0: Right. And... Is it your perception that in this last session, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like what you're saying in the funding for environmental agencies, the, the legislature didn't do very well in this past session. But on a number of other issues, there was some big headway made, I, I, would, I would say. What, what's your take on,
1: on, you know, in a broad view, how the legislature did in this past session? So if you dropped in from Mars, you'd say this was a hell of a good session. I mean the notion that we're going to build the first offshore wind farm in America off the coast of Massachusetts that's a good thing. Unlike Cape Wind this is going to be farther offshore in deeper waters an area 10 times the size of Cape Wind at a lower cost. That's a good thing. Not only because not only just for the environment but again the Danish company Dong that will be probably the, the biggest player in that created 50,000 60,000 jobs in Europe when they built offshore went off the coast of Copenhagen, Germany, the United Kingdom. We need those jobs. They're prepared, I hope, to move their U.S. headquarters here and do manufacturing here. This is an economic engine as much as anything else, and the legislature understood that by upping the number to 1,600 megawatts. Could have been higher. We always want more. We're advocates, but we're... We think that was a good uh, step. Uh, They're going to bring in more renewable energy from Canada. Um, Hydro, which is not as clean as some people think, but certainly cleaner than fossil fuels. And they put a premium on those same transmission lines bringing in onshore wind from Maine because we need to diversify our portfolio. Those are really good things. In addition, there's some new investment in storage batteries, which we think is sort of a, people think of it as a small thing. Storage batteries are gonna revolutionize energy policy in America.
0: George, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I uh, hope you come back again soon. And for all our listeners, thank you for listening. And you can check us out anytime on iTunes or SoundCloud. And also, thanks to our executive producer, Lear Johansson. Thank you very much.
1: Here comes the sun, doo-doo. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right.